0: The New Testament reading is from Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Aaron, Uh, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb
1: The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning, especially on this first day of of Advent. And again, what a great way to ring in the first day of the church's calendar than to welcome these children into the covenant community through the sacrament of baptism. And the same promise that we find here. And this text is the same promise that's for us, but also the same promise for all of these children. And it's in anticipation of, of hearing this promise, this promise that creates, crafts, calls, and collects the church, that we approach this word today. So let us pray that God would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to hear The promise of his word. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all that it does. I pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, would apply the hope of this passage to our hearts. Father, we're standing at the very beginning of Advent the time when we celebrate the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear this promise afresh today, that we might with reverent awe anticipate the celebration of Christmas. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are a weary, weary people. We weren't always like this. Once we thought that if we just had that thing, if we just got that job, if we just lived in that place, if we just had that kind of romance, if our kids just got into that college, then everything would be different. We wouldn't feel this constant restlessness. We would finally feel at home in the world, and we could finally enjoy life as it comes to us. But then we grow, we get older, and then to some degree or another, we we actually get some of these things, perhaps in part, perhaps in full, and we still feel that same restlessness, those same anxieties, that same sense of discontent. And we come to think that this is just how life is. And of course, at present, all of this is set against the backdrop of a long-standing pandemic and social tensions that have reached a fever pitch. Someone here in the church recently sent me a fascinating and eye-opening clip from a recent New York Times article. And in particular, this clip has to do with how easily things become our new normal, how easily they become our new standard. And the article quotes a scientific study from from the mid-90s, and it, it makes the following observation about generations of children growing up in Houston. The study says, quote, with each generation, the amount of environmental degradation increases, but each generation takes that amount as the new norm, end quote. And the author of that New York Times article, Brooke Jarvis, then goes on to offer a stunning illustration. She writes the following, quote, In decades of photos of fishermen holding up their catch in the Florida Keys, the marine biologist Lauren McLinigan found a perfect illustration of this phenomenon, which is often called shifting baseline syndrome. The fish got smaller and smaller to the point where the prize catches were dwarfed By fish that in years past were piled up and ignored. But the smiles on the fishermen's faces stayed the same size. The world never feels fallen because we grow accustomed to the fall. End quote. And what a line. The world never feels fallen because we grow accustomed to the fall. This is the weariness of our existence. The fish get smaller and smaller and smaller, and so do our expectations, our hopes, and our joys. Because to give a big smile to a small fish is to hope for a small fish. And this is the way that we learn to live in a fallen world, to keep your expectations low. There will always be selfishness and strife among people. There will always be longings in your heart that remain unfulfilled. There will always be sickness. There will always be death. These realities are the small fish that we just have to learn to smile at. But such an existence makes us weary. Very weary, extremely weary, weary of searching, weary of finding, weary of each new thing, leaving us just as restless as the thing before. So weary that we become weary of life itself. As we heard from Ecclesiastes all things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. This is weariness. But what if the last thing that God wants us to do is to grow accustomed to the fall? What if this weariness is meant to be a kind of warning signal? What if there is, in fact, something new? Something that has not been before? And that's what this present passage of Scripture is all about. We find something that jars us from the millions of different ways that we grow accustomed to the fall. We find something truly and actually new. The angel, comes, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he announces that she will give birth to Christ, the Savior, who is the Son of David, who is the Son of God, Most High. This is something new. And in particular, in this passage, I want to focus on two important and interrelated aspects. What we find here, both the means of Christ's conception and Mary's response to what happens as we will see both are good and necessary news for a weary, weary world. First, look at how Mary is to become pregnant. We see this in verses uh, 34 and 35. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the Son of God. Mary is told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and overshadow her. And actually, the, the Greek word used here is, is, is meant to denote a kind of casting a shadow, actually creating darkness. And, and, and in a sense, this should strike us as strange why would God work in the shadows? Isn't God the one that brings light? Isn't that what Advent is all about? We already lit a candle. But remember, we have to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture, that we find ourselves in a grand biblical story. And to understand what's happening here, we have to go back, way back, all the way back to the very beginning, to the opening chapters of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Gabriel here is using the language of creation. Just as the Holy Spirit hovered above the darkness in the very beginning, so now he's working in Mary's womb, creating in the darkness. And this tells us that God has not given up on his creation. He continues to work in and through his creation. Christ doesn't just appear out of thin air. Christ is conceived in. He develops in. He is birthed from the womb of Mary. However, we need to go further here because the appeal to the Holy Spirit working in the darkness also indicates a newness. The old creation is being rescued, restored, redeemed, and saved, but it's being done so by a work of new creation. Creation is is good, just like fish. We talked about that example. Fish are good. Yet creation suffers from corruption, and it's the corruption of sin. And just as the fish from the illustration don't reach their full and proper size, so too does nothing in creation work exactly as it's intended and this is especially the case for humans we lie we subject others to self-interest we love neither neither god nor neighbor we get sick and we die humans are good these corruptions are not fish are good their increasing smallness is not In fact, the Christian tradition has long understood sin as a kind of privation, as a kind of non-being, as a turn toward nothingness, as uncreation. We, like the fish, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and we, like the fishermen, are getting accustomed to this. We learn to smile when we should frown. And that brings us to a question, from where does this creation, or where does this corruption come from that that, that has corrupted this old creation? And this question helps us understand the importance of the newness of what is happening in Mary's womb. It's a new work of the Holy Spirit creating in the dark, But we have to ask ourselves, what is going on here with the virgin birth? Why is it necessary for Christ to be born of a virgin? Yes, it's miraculous. Yes, it's astounding. But is it really that important for who Christ is and what he does that he be born of a virgin? Couldn't we make this optional so that the birth of Christ could be more palatable to modern sensibilities? But again, we have to ask this question, from where does our corruption come? When God first created, when the Father spoke through the Son, the Word, in the vivifying and life-giving power of the Spirit, this work of creating found its peak, found its climax, found its culmination, and the making of humanity. Humanity was to rule and to love and steward creation as God's very images, and all of humanity found its head, found its representative, in Adam. All of humanity, even all of creation itself, was to either rise or fall with Adam. But of course, Adam disobeyed the good and gracious and giving word of God, and so Adam fell. And when he fell, all of us fell with him. He was our head, he was our representative, and in the reckoning of God, what Adam did, we did. And so the guilt of Adam's disobedience fell upon us, was counted to us, was imputed to us. And one punishment of this guilt is this corruption that we all bear. Because of Adam's sin, all of creation, including us, is subjected to the futility of toil, of thorns, of sickness, of death. All of us inherit, all of us are born into this condition known as original sin, where we bear Adam's guilt and bear Adam's corruption. And as we act out this corruption, we incur guilt of our own. That doesn't mean creation is not good. Creation is good. Creation is very good. We meet God's gifts at each and every turn, but because of this fallenness, because of this corruption, it is a weary, weary, weary world. But when you think about this, you might be tempted to ask two questions, even even put forward two complaints. The first is, isn't this whole notion of original sin unfair? Why should we be punished for what Adam did? That's an important question, and, and I want to answer that, but I want to put it to the side at present. So let's go to the second question. Why are we talking about original sin in the year 2021? Isn't that more suited to a fairy tale? Even more, if we're affirming some kind of original sin that we all bear, well, isn't that a morbid, pessimistic, degrading, demeaning view of humanity? Doesn't that actually undo human dignity? Well, the philosopher Charles Taylor is is really helpful here in in tying these strands together. He says that in modernity, we, we tend to operate at what he calls a lower altitude. We don't really think we're all that bad, and the good for which we hope isn't really all that great. Again, we smile big at small fish. Our expectations are lower, our hopes are chastened, our joys are contracted. We live in a smaller world with many smaller things, not just smaller fish. And from this vantage point, all of the wrong in the world can be reduced to what Taylor identifies as, quote, the result of sickness owing to avoidable traumas, faulty upbringing, lack of the right kind of support, and the like, end quote. And these, of course, are all proper sources of grief and lament. None of them should be taken lightly. But the question Taylor is raising is whether they themselves are the ultimate source of what ails us. Taylor is saying what we believe to be our primary and ultimate cause of evil and wrong in the world has changed. And what does Taylor say is actually different about our modern moment? He says the modern consciousness has lost the concept of sin. We have come to believe that sin is an affront and an insult to human dignity. To affirm sin is to hold the goodness of the human in contempt. And on the surface, this certainly makes sense, because to affirm that sin has corrupted each and every one of our faculties is to affirm that we are deeply, deeply flawed creatures. But Taylor makes an interesting move here, and he points out that this actually cuts both ways. If we suffer from the corruption of sin, then the way that things are is actually vastly different than the way that things are meant to be. If we suffer from sin, then what we're meant to be and what we're meant to do is much, much greater than anything offered by current modern solutions. Only if sin has brought us this low, can the destruction of sin bring us so high? Only if our main problem is sin can we escape the weariness that plagues human life. So then sin is not the rejection, but the utmost recognition of human dignity. Only if there is such a thing as sin can we identify ourselves as distinctly small fish. And only if there is such a thing as sin do we have reason to frown at this smallness rather than to smile at it cheerfully. And what if, what if there was one who was born without sin? What if there was one who was born free of this corruption? What if there was one who was born that was not under the headship of Adam for whom Adam was not the representative but, but, but how could this be? Because once we are born, Adam is a kind of covenantal father for us all. Well, one would have to come without an earthly father. Specifically, the Holy Spirit would again have to work in the darkness to make a new humanity. A new humanity not under Adam's guilt and corruption. One would have to be born of a virgin without the taint of Adam's disobedience. And this, of course, is exactly what Gabriel announces to Mary. And this, of course, is something new. This is the story of God, the Son, becoming human, taking our humanity in the womb of the Virgin. This is the story of Christ establishing a new humanity. This is the story of the biggest fish of all coming to swim with us in our unfortunate smallness, and we small fish are called to take note. Our smallness is not natural. Our smallness is not the way it's meant to be. We, in our weariness, we are not the norm because here is one who comes without selfishness, without greed, without envy, without jealousy, without spite, who loves God and neighbor perfectly, and he's not beholden to that self-interest that holds us captive in each and everything that we do. Here is Christ Jesus, Son of God Most High, the one conceived in the womb of the virgin, the one who has nothing of Adam's smallness, the one who was tempted at all times, but unlike Adam, never fell. But, you might ask, doesn't Christ still suffer the effects of corruption? When we read the gospel, doesn't Christ suffer and die? Yes, yes, he does. And this is just as necessary as his virgin birth. It's necessary that Christ suffer certain bodily defects in order for him to fulfill this mission of love and grace. To quote the the theologian Michael Gorman on this, and and he does this in expounding the work of the great uh, medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, Gorman writes the following, quote, Does Christ have bodily defects or shortcomings? In the usual case, bodily defects are a penalty for sin. But naturally, this does not apply to Christ, who is without sin. Nonetheless, Christ does have bodily defects such as hunger, thirst, and mortality, because he freely accepts, ac- accepts them in the service of his salvific mission. End quote. Yes, Christ takes suffering upon himself, but he does so willingly, not because he bears the guilt of Adam. He does it in order that he would bear our guilt. And this brings us to Mary's response. After Gabriel announces the birth of this child to Mary, and immediately after Gabriel departs, we find the following response from Mary in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. However, if if we read this in Greek, the first word of the verse is actually arose, and, and Luke is drawing special attention to this action. And if we look throughout Luke's writings in both his gospel and in the book of Acts, we see that this action often denotes an important shift in the person. There's a kind of, of newness that he or she experiences, and it pushes them to arise. And here, because of the promise she has received, there's a newness in Mary. She arises, she responds, things are not the same. Something is new, something that has not been before. Something has come to break the deep, deep weariness of the world. And to understand this, we have to ask ourselves, where else do we find this action of arising? in several places but one in particular is Luke 22:45 and we find this in the garden of gethsemane when this child in Mary's womb has grown and he's facing the cross and when he arose from prayer that is Christ he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and he said to them why are you sleeping rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation he rises. He rises from prayer, and this rising is the newness of Jesus coming to the cross to fully undo the work of Adam, the one who has loaded us with guilt and corruption. And having lived with a bigness of life that shows that our smallness is not the way it's meant to be, a bigness that exuded love for God and neighbor at every turn, Christ now arises and sets his face to take the punishment for our smallness. And while Christ alone is born without guilt, without the guilt of Adam, he, t- he willingly takes it upon the cross. And Christ bears this guilt. He bears the guilt of Adam. He bears the guilt of us. He bears the guilt of each and every person that places their faith in him. And remember, we we talked about an earlier complaint, this, this notion that it would be unfair for us to be punished, to bear the guilt for what Adam did. But this actually dismisses the very logic of the salvation we have in Christ. It's true that the guilt of Adam is imputed to us, is counted to us at birth, but it's also the case that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. Faith alone, faith alone. All it takes to receive Christ and all of his benefits is simply to rest and to trust in him. And so to speak of salvation is not to speak of fairness. It's to speak of the very grace of God. Again, in Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit is forming a new humanity. Not one under Adam, but a new humanity under Christ. And this is the message of Advent, that all things, including us, are being made new. Advent is about the birth of Christ, but it's also about our rebirth. Yes, we are born in Adam with his guilt and his corruption, but we can be reborn in Christ with Christ's righteousness and Christ's purifying presence. Even more, we can look forward to our resurrection when all of our smallness, all of our corruption, all of our sickness and sadness and selfishness will be done away with. And that, that alone is our proper normal, that is our proper standard, not the weary world that we now inhabit. And all of us, just as did Mary, receive all these gifts by faith by believing this promise. So let us, like Mary, learn to say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And this word is such a sweet and gracious word. This word is that all the benefits of salvation are ours because of the work of this child in her womb. And all of those are ours by faith in him. And this might seem too good to be true. This might seem impossible. But again, the angel Gabriel reminds us nothing will be impossible with God. So we, like Mary, must arise. We must embrace this newness. And again, the action of arising indicates a newness in the writings of Luke. So we see this in other places. As the Lord says to Ananias in Acts 9, "'Rise and go to the street called Straight "'at the house of Judas. "'Look for a man of, of Tarsus named Saul. "'Arise, Ananias. "'See this newness. "'The harsh, harshest persecutor of the church "'will become one of the church's greatest witnesses. "'Even Saul, even he can be made new. "'Come, Ananias, and inhabit this new world.'" And so let us too arise. Let us remember that however weary we might feel, that this person, even ourselves, would never come to embrace the newness of Christ, remember that God can make all things new. Arise. No soul is impervious to the newness of Christ. Share this newness. Wake others from the weariness of the world. As the Lord says to Peter in Acts 11, declaring all animals clean, Rise, rise, Peter, kill and eat. All of creation is good and clean. Don't mistake the corruption with the creation. The fish are not to be this small, and neither are you. All of creation is clean, and the work that you do is very, very important. Management, research, teaching, homemaking, parenting, farming, coding, medicine, law, and a million other vocations, they're clean. Rise and see the newness that God seeks to work through your work. The Spirit forms a new creation in Mary's womb for the sake of the whole creation. Rise, kill, and eat. Arise, work, and steward. And as Peter says in praise over the widow Tabitha, who has just undergone the futility of death in Acts 9, he says to her, Arise, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Arise from death to new life. And lastly, Mary arises too. She arises and she seeks out Elizabeth, the one who knows the new world that Mary has just been invited into. Imagine how it must have felt for Mary holding fast to this wonderful promise that perhaps she alone knew, let alone actually believed. What a joy it must have been to find here Elizabeth, one that she could share the promise with, one in whom she could rejoice together with about this promise. And there's a sense in which this is the experience of every single Christian. We have received the wonderful promise of Christ, of the one who will take our guilt and corruption and give us his righteousness and favor before God. And we receive these gifts by the very act of believing, of trusting, of faith. And in the church, we find the Elizabeths to our Mary. Fellow believers with whom we can share and enjoy this wonderful news. Fellow believers who have come to taste and inhabit the newness that Advent ushers in. Mary was not alone, and neither are you. Recall... That scary truth, that scary warning, as Brooke Brooke Jarvis writes, the world never feels fallen because we grow accustomed to the fall. Let that not be the case for us, church. And let us also remember that most perceptive of Christmas carols. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the newness of Christ. We thank you for new creation. We thank you that you have rescued us from the weariness of the world Lord, give us eyes to see and help us not to grow accustomed to the fall. Help us to trust in Christ and help us to hope in the fullness of his salvation. Help us to love your creation and help us to look forward to the consummation of the resurrection. Thank you for Advent. Thank you for Christ's coming, which makes each and every one of these things possible. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.